Three building blocks of this podcast, lists of six-item rule breaker principles, five stock samplers and reviewing them, and talking not just about my winners, but my losers too. Those three building blocks were all in evidence this past month. The year kicked off as we do every year with David's Biggest Losers, Volume 6. We then reviewed two past winning five-stock samplers, and I got out my dice to try to create the next winner. And then last week, a new list of six rule breaker principles, this time six principles of a rule breaker portfolio. It was an exceptionally foolish rule breakery month and lots else happened in the world too. Well, a fourth building block of this podcast is what we do the final Wednesday of every month, mailbag. Our shared opportunity together to think one step deeper about what we covered this month Go into open dialogue throughout. Your questions, your stories and thoughts, chicken soup for the foolish soul we can share together during a long, cold winter. Well, that Wednesday is this Wednesday. It's time for your Rule Breaker Investing mailbag only on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. All right, welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. A delight to have you with me here at the end of January 2021. I already covered it up top, but I'll just quickly review David's Biggest Losers to kick off the month. My six worst stock picks of the last three years. That was January 6th, January 13th. Six Rule Breaker Principles for How to Build and Steward Your Portfolio. And then last week, five stocks rolled up at random and a review of Palooza of two previous five stock samplers. Both, I'm happy to say, utterly destroying the market. Those were five stocks that sparked joy and five stocks shrouded in mystery. That was the month that was. This is the week that is the final week of January 2021. And let's get started very shortly with your mailbag. One housekeeping item in advance. One of my favorite people in the world of board games is my guest on next week's show. Now, if you are a heavy duty gamer, and I know some of you are, and you're out there, you probably will instantly recognize the name Reiner Knizia. However, admittedly, much of the world still has never played a Reiner Knizia board game and so wouldn't recognize the name of one of my favorite people in the world of board gaming and somebody who's become a personal friend over the years. And Reiner is our guest next week. Now, you can imagine we're going to talk about board games, but we're going to talk a lot more about that. I'm sure I'll be asking Reiner how he invests, but a lot of it is about the creative process. He is an artist. He is a prolific game designer. Within the world of board games, he's kind of like Mozart. He is incredibly prolific at a very high level. I love to hang out with those people and learn from them. You know, Reiner came from the world of business. He was working at a bank before he decided to step away and become a full-time board game designer. So if you're thinking about a career transition, you'll probably be interested in that too. To these ends, then, let me mention that we will take your proposed questions. If you're a Reiner Knizia fan, especially rbi at fool.com is our email address. Drop us a line. I will look over your question submissions. If I see some great ones, your question will be included in my interview with Reiner Knizia next week. Now, I rarely issue homework on this podcast, but if you are not yet a Reiner Knizia fan and you're in the market for a simple card game or a family board game, let me recommend in advance Lost Cities. 
one of his older designs. It's a lovely two-player card game. It also plays multiple players as a board game. Both of them are available on Amazon. So if you want to buy a game, play in advance and start to discover how Reiner designs for delight for people and families, there's your homework in the week ahead. And before I start with my hot takes from Twitter, I do want to mention, occasionally I'll do this for mailbags. When certain types of questions come in and I don't answer them, I want you to understand how to increase your odds of being included on the mailbags for Rule Breaker Investing. So occasionally I'll give out a tip or two. And here's one that came to mind this week. I read at least one note that was really thoughtful. It was from a college student basically saying, hey, how could I start a college fool's chapter? Or could the fool assist us creating more university presence? This was somebody who went through and maybe majored in business, but felt as if a lot of his or her friends at Clemson didn't know a lot of the things that you and I know as rule breaker investors and people who care about the markets. And and my new Clemson friend is one of them, but I'm not going to actually include that on this week's podcast, even though I'm mentioning it, because it's an example of a question that is really a motley fool question. So sometimes questions are asked of me, but really on behalf of my company. So that's a great example of something that should be asked of the company. I'm here. I'm just a little cogwheel in the machine here focused on rule breaker investing. So typically questions that are really for the motley fool, not for me personally or for rule breaker investing, probably have less a chance of being read. But anyway, a great topic and one I sure hope our company will get to and do well at some point. All right, four hot takes from Twitter. This week, the first one from Fenix Doruz at Fenix Doruz on Twitter. Love the six rule breaker investor habits. Now, Fenix, based on the rest of your tweet, I think that you are referring, of course, to our six rule breaker portfolio principles. The investor habits, another list we use a lot, but not this particular month. Anyway, he goes on from there to say, very concise and helpful. The analogy with the horse race makes the podcast stick in your head. I've listened to it twice already, noted it down for future references. Thanks at David G. Fool. Well, thank you, Fenix. It was truly a delight to bring you six principles of a rule breaker portfolio. That certainly sparked some of our exchanges this particular week. So we'll be getting to those a little bit later, but thank you for that nice note. To the same end, Ian Richards at Ian underscore E underscore Richards on Twitter. Just listen to the podcast on portfolio management. Good stuff as usual. One thing I would add, Ian says, before doing anything, think about tax. Very easy to make a withdrawal or reallocation without realizing you'll pay a big tax bill, especially here in Spain, Ian writes. I certainly appreciate that point. I'm not going to add taxes back into the principles of portfolio management for rule breakers. I certainly agree that it's important and all of us should be thinking about it. But Ian and everybody else, I hope you remember that when I said this list of six principles are principles, it's not a comprehensive plan. And at least for me, taxes just don't factor in enough into my portfolio management thinking. Certainly, one click down, they do. And if I were writing more about this, of course, I just did this as an oral podcast. But if I were writing more about this, I would be speaking to that. But at a high, high level, I don't think I'm going to include the word tax in any of those six principles. But I certainly appreciate you pointing that out. And I hope a lot of us are conscious of the tax implications of what we're doing in our portfolios, because that can really count, especially it sounds like if you're in a high tax country like Spain. Tweet number three, this is from Jeffrey. Rocking again, I've said this before, one of my favorite Twitter names, at Hefe McOnage. Jeffrey, you say, I was just talking about a rule specifically for when one of the horses wins the race. Now, again, this is going back to our rule breaker portfolio principles. When one of the horses wins the race and coming up with ways to define that, Jeff says, when the 
the horse is in the top 10 of all market caps. That's sort of where we ended up. I think that would have gotten you out of AOL efficiently. Well, let me speak to that in two quick ways, Jeff. First of all, I'm going to be speaking to that a little bit later this podcast, so thank you for that. And second, I want you to know that just because a company has gotten to be one of the 10 largest market caps in the world, by no means would that cause me to think I should now sell the stock. Obviously, Apple did that when it crossed the $1 trillion mark, and it's more than doubled and not much time since. I think a lot of us would have regretted having sold Apple. But that concept of the horse race, which does run through my portfolio principles, ultimately was not designed to be an allegory. I'm not shooting for an allegorical high-level view of horse races, but I certainly appreciate the point because I referred to it a few, a few times. We played the sound effect, which I think stuck in some people's minds. I really like that approach. And I think it's a fair question, just sticking with that metaphor for a sec, asking, what does it mean to end the race? And how do you treat the horses that win? I'm still going to leave that kind of open-minded. I don't have clear answers yet myself. As I mentioned, the work from earlier this month, that is in draft form. So I'm still thinking it through. And Jeff, you've helped me think a little bit more about it. And I'm hoping to spur some others to think about that more as well. And then finally, this one from at M. Ducas. Mark D. writes in on Twitter. Hi, David. Love the market cap game show, but felt badly when Emily, this happened in December, at the end of December, but felt badly when Emily guessed so close, but still lost. Suggestion, if the guesser is within X percent of the actual market cap, then they get one point. The other player still guesses high or low and gets their point, but then you announce after that that the guesser earned a point also. Maybe if it, you were within 5 or 10%, Mark says, gives both contestants a chance full on. Well, I do like that. I think that is an improvement, and yet our first mailbag item of the month, which I'm about to do, has, I think, an even better suggestion, so let's get to that. All right, rule breaker mailbag item number one. This one comes from Adam Nelson, market cap game show suggestion. Let's do it, Adam. Hi, David. I really enjoy these episodes and thought I might suggest a change after listening to the last market cap game show. Try giving the guesser the ability to state a range of market caps, and then their opponent can say inside or outside that range. Adam goes on, this is similar to the old card game AC Ducey, which is always a good time. And I have to admit, Adam, I never did have that card game, so I haven't played it, but I get the concept and I really like this. Adam goes on, doing it this way allows the contestants to place more or less pressure on their opponent by changing the width of the range. And it's a fun expression of the confidence level too. With investing, it's never an exact science, as you know, and I think it would be more useful to teach your listeners to use a range rather than guess with false precision. I also think this can make the game very challenging if both analysts have a strong opinion on a market cap and your analysts are often right. P.S. I'm a Stock Advisor member, but love your rule-breaking mentality and insightful podcast. Thanks for all you do, Adam Nelson. Well, Adam, I think you have really nailed it with this one. It's a new year, therefore... Four new market cap game shows will be coming in 2021, I trust. And the first one, which will happen near the end of March, we will be using the Adam Nelson format. I really like that. Let's give a quick example. Let's take Etsy. Why wouldn't we? The market cap of Etsy in real life today, by the way, is $26.2 billion as we record on Tuesday afternoon, January 26th. $26.2 billion. So I might turn to one of my contestants and say, what is your market cap range for Etsy? And that smart 
fool analyst, whoever he or she is, will think about it and might say something like 18 billion to 30 billion. That's a choice. That's a choice that my contestant has made. They could have said 25 billion to 27 billion. It could be as small or large a range as they want. And then all the other contestant does, and you playing at home, all you need to do is say inside or outside. So in our example, the examples I gave, both of those, if you'd said inside, you'd have it right. And so it puts pressure on the guesser to narrow the range as much as they're comfortable. And it's just a much more thoughtful game. I really like that suggestion, Adam. I think you've made us smarter, happier, and richer. So we're going to try it out in March. Really looking forward to it. Thanks for the great suggestion. All right. Rule breaker mailbag item number two. This is from Jason Smith. Thank you, Jason. David, rule breaker and stock advisor member here. And I've been investing in some form since I was in high school. My first stock I bought was Shaw Group, ticker symbol S-H-A-W, as a senior in high school. I had summer job money and graduating gift money saved up, and I decided to pay a visit to my parents' stockbroker, and I bought $1,000 of Shaw and $1,000 of a mutual fund. And after my purchase, Shaw went from around $20 a share to $40 a share, and I sold out, and then I bought Nokia in 2007-ish, Right as the iPhone came out, Nokia didn't quite work out as well. I've been investing in mutual funds since then. I'm 34 today. I love that backstory. Thank you for sharing that, Jason. While I feel I have a decent background in investing, it was something I've had to attempt to to learn on my own. I'm the son of two doctors. My parents understood the value of investing, but that was about it. They invested heavily in mutual funds. Now, I'm a lawyer by trade, so like my parents, I had no exposure to investing or business in my professional training. But I decided four to five years ago, I needed a productive hobby. So I started buying individual stocks, listening to various podcasts, and subscribing to various stock picking services. Rule Breakers was one service I subscribed to. I've always had an eye toward buy and hold investing, but I tried my hand at shorter term bets as well. Well, investing has changed the way I look at the world. I've learned more about business and markets than I ever thought I would. There's simply so much to learn about the world. The study of a business is the perfect way to do it. Music to my ears, Jason. Let me keep going. Motley Fool, and especially, specifically Rule Breakers, has helped me immensely along the way. Now, I struggled, though, with the conflicting advice I got from various sources in financial media. Buy this, sell that. OMG, you are crazy for even considering that stock. Things get mind-bending, especially when facing questions related to portfolio allocation or when to sell. This brings me to my point. The six principles of a rule-breaker portfolio brought everything together, particularly points two, know the portfolio purpose, and four, know your sleep number. For example, in my IRA, I think my sleep number is 50, but in my individual account, it is 20. This podcast brought it all together for me, addressed nagging questions of mine, and now all the principles of Rule Breaker Investing create a total package that allows me to invest with 100% confidence, knowing that my stock purchases may not always be right, but that my approach is. Thank you, Jason Smith. Well, thank you back, Jason, and I'm just delighted. Uh, The reason I wanted to share that note is because Sometimes it's helpful for all of us to hear somebody else reacting to things and saying, 
here's what works for me. Here's what jumped out to me. For example, Jason, you mentioned the sleep number jumping out to you. I think that worked for a lot of other people too. But for all of us as fellow fools to hear somebody else and their reactions can steal our confidence often or give us some encouragement. And so that's the spirit of your note. Now, there will be a few other mailbag items that explore deeper or question some of the principles, which I'm fine with too. As I mentioned, it's all a draft. But I did want to just share Jason's note to sort of lock down for at least one very well-educated person who's made the move from mutual funds to stocks and is having a great time that it brought it all together for him. And that put a big smile on my face. So thank you, Jason Smith. All right, rule breaker mailbag item number three. Hi, David. This is from Simon Barker, by the way. And a couple of people wrote in on this topic. So that's why I wanted to address it. We're talking about sleep number here with rule breaker mailbag item number three. Hi, David. New investor here and member of the Stock Advisor Service. I'm loving the RBI podcast. I've recently transitioned from eight years running my own company to now working as an employee. And so I've also transitioned from simply investing in a managed portfolio to individual stocks. Now, I don't have my own company anymore to see potentially market-beating returns, so my mentality has shifted to wanting my salary to work harder for me. It's been an interesting mindset shift and one that has taken 18 months to realize since shutting down the company. In your six principles this month, you mentioned how your sleep number is still at 80 because most of your wealth is in your Motley Fool company. I wonder if this is really your true sleep number, though. When I owned Radfan, I could say that my sleep number was similar, probably higher, but in reality, that wealth wasn't easily liquidated, much as I imagine yours isn't unless you wanted to sell a large stake in The Motley Fool. I think for entrepreneurs and company owners, it's probably worth having a distinction between stocks you can easily sell and applying your sleep number there versus those that you cannot. You even highlight the issue someone like Jeff Bezos has. If he wants to sell his Amazon stock, he can't do it in one go because he would tank the share price. His sleep number here is being held high by external forces. Hope this thought is of some use. Keep up the great stock picks. I've got 32 years to typical retirement age. Hoping to get there sooner following your advice, Simon Barker. Well, from all of us here at The Motley Fool, Simon, thank you for that note. And for me personally, I appreciate you pushing back a little bit on the idea of a sleep number being contextual. Because I put it out there just to remind, especially any new listeners this week, the sleep number, in my context, is the number of a percentage that you would allow your highest allocated stock ever to grow into. So for example, if your sleep number is 40, and that's a big number, you're saying you would allow a single holding in your portfolio to take over 40% of your net worth, of your portfolio, if you will. Now, that's a really big number. And I have a number bigger than that. And we're going to talk about that in a sec. But I just want to make sure everybody understands the basic concept of a sleep number. And for a lot of people, theirs would be closer to five or 10. In very evenly allocated portfolios or more conservative portfolio rebalancing approaches, people have low sleep numbers. They don't want a single stock to become more than five or 10% of their portfolio. And that's the way mutual funds are managed today. Most managed mutual funds have requirements that they can't have a holding that is a substantial size because it's considered to be too unsafe for the rest of the fund and to make the fund unsafe for many an investor. So the concept of the sleep number was for me the innovative breakthrough that I made. And I hope I gave words and new language to something that helps people think through their own portfolios. Now, just to speak to 
highly illiquid situations. And anybody who's an entrepreneur who owns company shares, whether you're a private or public market entrepreneur, you can understand this. I stand by my position that if that is the majority of your net worth, that you probably have a very large sleep number because in the end, the whole context is important to me. So if you or I have the majority, 50 plus percent of our net worth in our company, I really do think you should think of it that way as a sleep number. And so you should just recognize that. Now, again, a lot of wealth managers will take you aside, twist your arm a little and say, hey, I think you should be systematically paring down the allocation that you have toward that big imbalanced position. And for a lot of entrepreneurs, they do that. I've mentioned this before, but somebody like Reed Hastings of Netflix fame, Reed Hastings has consistently been selling off little mechanical bits of his Netflix holdings over the years. It's still a huge amount of wealth, but he has been paring it back. And a lot of people, again, listening to their wealth managers will do just that. I like to share my personal approach to life through this podcast to be authentic and real for people. But I also, when I say that my own sleep number has been 80, I don't really want to serve as an exemplar to most people who are listening to me right now. It's a unique situation. I'm just being true to my own situation and telling you what I do. But I'm the first to say that you need to pick a number that makes sense for you. And to those like Simon who wrote in about the illiquidity of a big position when it is your own company, and you can't just sell the company the next day or sell the stock... I think that probably suggests that with the rest of your money that isn't invested in that one big position, you probably should be spreading that out more than usual. You probably shouldn't have a second stock where a lot of your wealth is concentrated in. But again, mine is not to determine with your financial planner and you how you should be managing your money. This is a podcast where I'm giving out principles, trying to help people think smarter, become smarter, happier, and richer. So I hope it's helped there. The illiquidity of a position certainly matters in the greater context of your net worth or mine. All right, rule breaker mailbag item number four. And yes, I did very intentionally put this one right after the previous one, which reminds me to say that I have a whole process by which I put together these podcasts, these mailbags every month. Rick Engdahl through Trello, which by the way, is a property of Atlassian, ticker symbol T-E-A-M, which has been a wonderful rule breaker stock for many of us. So we use Trello and we get about this this month we got 31 pages of write-ups and comments and I read through them all and then I start to go here's the yes pile here's the maybe pile here's the no pile and usually the yes pile is large enough that I don't even go to the maybes but then I take the yeses and I start to categorize them by different types and in fact if you want to see a screenshot of that I tweeted that out earlier today Wednesday January 27th I'm at David G Fool on Twitter, but I'll show you just a little bit of the visual of my process. But after organizing them all, I then think about the sequencing. What makes sense to come when? I'm not going to belabor this point further here. The point of this podcast is not to go through the process of building a podcast, but I do want you to know, I think very much about what is point number one, what is point number 11. Yep, we have 11 this week. And after I've done three, what makes sense for four? So to me, this one made sense next. This comes from Brett Wyman. Thank you for the note. Dear David, I'm writing to you as a 20-year-old investor and a stock advisor member of just a few months. First of all, thank you so much for all that you, Tom, and the Motley Fool team do each and every day. The honest, transparent nature of your services, so refreshing. And I hope that more companies follow in your footsteps as I think it would make our world a much better place. 
As I look back at the history of investing, Brett writes, I see companies like IBM, General Electric, GM, Exxon. They were the ones sitting at the top of the S&P 500 in the 1980s and 90s, or maybe we'd even go 50s, 60s, 70s in some cases, if you will. I am now left wondering, Brett says, what happened? What went wrong? None of these companies is anywhere near the top of the S&P 500 today. This brings me to my main point, which is that today I see the likes of Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, and Facebook sitting strongly atop the S&P 500. And by atop, pretty sure Brett just means that they are the largest market caps today, which indeed Apple is. So many of these big companies are Motley Fool recommendations, which have performed very well over time. However, I wonder whether or not I will be sitting here in 20 years thinking to myself, what went wrong? What happened to those companies that were the leaders in 2021? You often advise to let your winners run, but how can we avoid sitting on our winners so long that they start to decline as new businesses take over? How do we know when it's time to sell our big winners? I'm hoping to start getting a grasp for some of these major investing questions early on in my career so that I am better set up for success later on. Thank you again for all that you do. Fool on Brett. Well, Brett Weinman, I think that you are wise beyond your years. At the age of 20, you're already getting started investing and you're already asking great questions that you're right. This is going to stead you well as you get to be my age, which I'm 54 these days, so 34 years hence, that you were asking this question before you'd even turn 21 means some really good things for your future. So yes, I think a lot of us are aware that the companies that were the big winners decades ago aren't still big winners today. And so it's very natural to think, okay, well, that's true. But then David and the whole rule breaker approach, the way to manage portfolio, the habits we develop as rule breaker investors, these often suggest never sell. And so do you end up holding General Motors all the way into utter mediocrity or General Electric the same? The list goes on. So two quick thoughts on this. It certainly deserves more thinking that I can do in a mailbag item, but two quick thoughts for you, Brett. First of all, it certainly is true that that does happen over time. And what I do as an investor is I continue to scrutinize my General Motors, which by the way, I never owned. My General Motors, if you will, let's say my Apple or my Amazon. And I ask some important questions. Questions like, is that company still a leader today? Is that company still innovating? Is it the lead innovator in its field today? Those are the things that really keep companies great. And by the way, some of these companies have been leaders for a few decades. It's not like they all peaked in the 2000s and you shouldn't have owned Apple or Amazon the last 10 years or so. Nope, they've remained great investments over the last 10 years. And I trust that they'll beat the market in the next 10 years. My money's where my mouth is. So point number one, I think you have to ask important questions about whether that company is still relevant, whether it's treating all of its stakeholders, including its customers, really well, and whether there are any upstarts coming along that might unseat it. I think some of the companies you mentioned, past winners, yes, it was very evident that those companies were being unseated and undone by various factors. And that really occurred in slow motion over years. So point number one, this does happen. That's why we have to ask important questions to separate the true long-term winners from the medium-term winners that won't keep winning. The second thing I would say to you is that we're all about investing in the upstarts, the ones that come along and disrupt those very companies. So if you have a big concentrated position in Apple, you could also consider 
selling off a portion of that and reinvesting in some of our new rule breaker picks. Maybe one of them will itself disrupt and unseat Apple over time. So we have a pretty good history for being invested in the very companies that come along and make IBM, GE, GM, and Exxon irrelevant in time. So I'm never going to say we're going to have a 100% hit rate, but you should feel pretty good confidence that if you're asking the right questions of your big winners and watching the skies for what might come along, the new shooting stars, I think you're going to do pretty well as an investor. And to close before we go to point number five, the reason I positioned this right after Rule Breaker Mailbag item number three, which was all about having a big sleep number, it's a reminder for some of us who have big sleep numbers that maybe we shouldn't have as big a number as we're thinking of. Maybe one of the things you should do if you have a concentrated uh, position in your portfolio is just sell off little bits of it mechanically to start to reduce the emphasis on that company for your net worth and use all the wonderful services that we have like Motley Fool Stock Advisor, Rule Breakers, and all the rest to continue to find new upstarts, new ideas, and additional leaders that are leading in other industries beyond the ones that you're so well focused on. So in conclusion, one of my favorite words is context in life. I think you really have to, you can't go with broad brush approaches and say, this will work every time, all the time. Nope. You need to look at the situation and ask what makes the most sense in this context. Out of a a rich assortment of tools in your toolbox, you need to pull out the right tool for the right situation. And that's where wisdom lies. And so, Brett, I think you're already on the path right now because you're asking the right question. I hope that was helpful. All right, rule breaker, mailback item number five. This one comes from Simon Rutten. Simon says, hi, David. I'm a fellow fool from Belgium for a few years now. I'm very happy with your services and I've already recommended it to many of friend. Well, thank you, Simon. Thanks for all those years of wisdom. Now, I've listened to the David's Biggest Losers episode, and I was very surprised to notice that Luckin Coffee wasn't mentioned. I bought that stock in March after your recommendation at around $27 or $28 a share. Now it's down to around $8 a share. By the way, that's a bounce back sum for that stock. It was well lower than that. Simon goes on, I know that happens. Luckily, I do have a well-diversified portfolio with plenty of quality stocks, so no worries there. But I do wonder why it wasn't mentioned as one of the biggest losers. Thanks for your feedback. Best regards, Simon Rutten. Well, Simon and all fools, you should know that I don't pick all the stocks that are picked at The Motley Fool. In fact, I just pick all the stocks in Motley Fool Rule Breakers, and I pick half of the stocks, my side of Motley Fool Stock Advisor. By the way, those are just two of our services. The Motley Fool has many services with lots of different people making picks. So in the case of Luck and Coffee, that was not my pick. I actually know very little about the company. I don't follow a lot of the other picks that are happening in the Motley Fool. I have enough time keeping track of the 230 or so active recommendations of companies that I oversee. So I regret to say Luck and Coffee was a loser for many a stock advisor member. In this case, wasn't my pick, but I do want you to know I have made some real losing picks in Motley Fool Stock Advisor. That was the point of the David's Biggest Losers podcast. But you also should always check who are the advisors making picks, not just in Motley Fool Services, but in anyone else's service, whether you look at Morningstar or people saying things on Bloomberg or The Street or wherever it is. I would encourage you to say who is actually making this pick. So I hope that was helpful. And I hope that Motley Fool Stock Advisor continues to help you and others invest better. I'm, again, always happy to call myself out with bad stock picks. I won't call anybody else out at our company. 
I'll call myself out again, though. You know, Al Kermis has been a real dog in Motley Fool's Stock Advisor. That's the last stock I picked for Stock Advisor members that's lost 50% or more. It was my September 2016 pick. A real disappointment. You know, a company doing important things in this world, a biotechnology company that develops innovative medicines designed especially around people with serious diseases, often mental health and addictions. So I really want this company to do well because it's going to help our world out. But boy, has that been a bad stock pick of mine, down more than 50%, and we're still holding more than four years later. So yep, this happens. It will always happen. It will continue to happen. It has happened many times in the past. But anybody who's a rule breaker investor by now knows the importance of losing to win. All right, Rule Breaker Mailbag, item number six. Love this one, Andy Bartis. Thank you. Writing in from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Go Twins. Hi, David. My three-year-old son asks unsolicited to listen to the Rule Breakers podcast in our car. I asked him to repeat this only to catch it on video. He has a GKC of 1.67 and his three-month-old brother has a GKC of eight. I'll explain what those mean in a second. And he concludes, I'm planning on continuing to add foolish recommendations to their portfolios and getting them involved in investment decisions once they can understand. This may be sooner than I expected due to the interest I'm receiving. I hope you're well and keep up the great work. Fool on, Andy Bartis. Well, of course, you know I was going to include that on this mailbag because I love stories of little kids investing. And I especially love a particularly precocious three-year-old somewhere in and around Minneapolis, Minnesota, who requests listening to this podcast at the age of three. Now, just concluding on this, I think a lot of us recognize the GKC is the Gardner-Kretzmann continuum. And what Andy is saying is that his three-month-old has a GKC of eight. That specifically means, I hope I'm doing my math right here, that he's one quarter of a year old. Therefore, I believe he has two stocks in his starting portfolio, which means the number of stocks is eight times the years of his age. Now, I think most of us are aspiring, and what I often hold up as a standard is a 1.0 ratio. That is, whatever your age, Brett Weinman, we talked about earlier, Brett, you're 20, so I'd love to think you have or are working toward 20 stocks. That feels like a good balanced approach and a portfolio approach to life. So you know, Andy, that I love hearing about three-month-old kids with GKCs of eight. Keep up the great work, Dad. And let's keep it in the family and another fun one. This one all the way from Stockholm, Sweden. Thank you, Per Vimekrans, for this note. Hi, David. I'm a listener from Stockholm, Sweden, and really enjoy the RBI podcast. I'm also a fan of the fool and your purpose to educate, amuse, and enrich. He says, I'm sticking with the old motto. You're welcome to, Per. Keep up the good work. Now, inspired by fool school, Per goes on, and to give something that'll keep on giving, I've decided to give my nephew a homemade board game. The concept is an an investment journey, in quotes, where I will give him a sum of money for his birthday and Christmas, which we will then invest together. For every investment, we will keep score and collect increased percentage points. Fingers crossed, Pear says. This will hopefully be a fun way to learn about investing. Pear says he's eight years old now, and the day he turns 18, I will then hand over the portfolio to him. Sounds like, Pear, it'll be game over at that point. He can then continue to invest and hopefully hand it over to his kids because really, that's why we invest, right? All the best. Have a great holiday. Fool on, 
Per Vimmerkrantz. Well, this was truly a delight to read. You know I love games, Per. You know I love investing. You know I love family games and family investing. And you, as a wonderful uncle, we'll call you the rich old uncle here for our purposes. The rich old uncle is hanging out with his nephew and creating a game of your own design to get him invested in the real world and game over at the age of 18 as he takes it over. Boy, what a wonderful family member you are. And I'm just delighted to share that story out. You know, part of the reason I enjoy sharing these kinds of stories on the Rule Breaker Investing Mailbag is to inspire you. Yes, you, dear listener, whoever you are, in case you haven't thought to do something like this, to use your creativity to say what makes sense for me in my life? What would I enjoy doing? And how do I make it count for others? This is going to be alluding to a future mailbag item a little bit later. How can I bring everyone else along with me, me, the successful investor, the rich uncle, if you will, Paris? So what a wonderful way to extend your love of investing and bring somebody else along with you and make it a game of it. Fool on to you, sir. All right, Rule Breaker mailbag item number eight, and this one comes from Luke Crum. What is the difference between Kodak and Amazon? That's the question that Luke starts his note with this week. Story. I discovered The Motley Fool when I was starting a family, and I remembered my dad saying something about respecting The Motley Fool a long time ago. My job at the time had a very long commute, giving me plenty of time to consume The Fool's podcasts, which started me on my financial journey. I went on to get a stock advisor membership. And now five years later, my wife and I have saved three times my yearly salary at the ages of 30 and 31. Wow. And we are just now reaching escape velocity. Love that phrase. Love that concept. Luke goes on, I'm very grateful for The Motley Fool's free content, which allowed me to get started on the right path before we could afford anything. Issue. Personal finance and stock picking has become a passion of mine, and I discuss the topic with friends and coworkers. Now, one common point of contention with initiating positions in great companies is the old, but it's run up so much already or recently. Luke goes on, I found this stems from a mathematical misunderstanding. Now, if you look at a company like Monster, talk about a monster stock, Luke says, it looks like the company has hockey sticked up in the last few years. In reality, it has been a very consistent outstanding performer. But because the stock chart measures price movement rather than percent movement, later gains distort the perspective of past gains. This leads potential investors to think they just missed a recent sharp run-up, when in reality, it might be the same 20% average return as ever. But 20% of $1 is just $0.20, while 20% of $100 is $20 and produces a spike that drowns out past performance. Now, Luke is about to give his solution, but I just want to say one thing here, which is, you're right, Luke, this really is how those linear graphs that we're used to seeing, uh, not just for the stock market, but in many other infographics and contexts in life, if something has a compounding gain over time, and you just look at the linear, not the logarithmic view of the graph, it'll look like all of the big gains have been made just in the most recent era, whatever that is, whether it's a year or 10 years, or whatever we're looking at, when in reality, as you say, the percentages were around that all the way through, but the numbers just compounded upon each other. And again, so many of us already know this. A lot of dyed-in-the-wool fool investors know all of this, but you're absolutely right. So many people who don't invest or don't know this 
look at the graphs. They get fixated on that picture that makes it look like the NASDAQ or the S&P 500 or Amazon stock or Monster Energy, a great rule breaker, by the way. Looks like they made these huge gains in just the last couple of years. So you feel like you've missed it and you shouldn't invest in it. Now, before I continue, I do want to say those stocks have made huge gains very recently. We talked about this on last week's podcast. Five stocks rolled up at random. One of them, spoiler alert, is Apple. And Apple, the largest company in the world by market cap today as a public company, Apple is up 60% in the last year or so. So we also do need to say that there have been some remarkable recent moves. But you know that I never let that phase me, and I'm always focused on the future, on the prize, on winning the race, not where we happen to be, which furlong, and who's winning right now, or how well we've done in the last year or two or three. It certainly is true that the market could have a bad year in 2021 or a really bad period of the next couple of years. I sure hope not, but I'm not focused on that, and I would hope that you're not either. Okay, let's go on to Luke's solution. Picking it back up, I work in data analytics, he says, and a part of the job is working with and collecting the data, but the most important part is making sure the data is communicated in a way that can be understood and acted on. I believe the fool would benefit from modifying the communication of stock charts in this way. Point number one, show a percent gain chart. This shows the year-over-year stock percent gains and losses. This would allow investors to see the constancy and track record of that company. Winners keep on winning, Luke says, without getting distracted by the mathematical noise of compounding return. Just reacting to what you've said here, Luke, I've often thought of it in terms of looking at logarithmic charts instead of linear charts, as I mentioned earlier. If a stock doubles and doubles again, the logarithmic chart shows a fairly smooth move from one double to the next, whereas the linear chart makes it all of a sudden look like it's swooped up four times in value. And that's just four times. Think about the 100 baggers or think about the S&P 500 over the last 50 years. You can see how the linear numbers would look crazy in those contexts. So I very much hear you on the data analytics and how important it is to present something that's understandable to people. And then the second and final solution Luke offers is, he says, use the noise. He says that hockey stick is dangerous when an investor misinterprets it as a massive short-term gain. However, what it really demonstrates is compounding. Luke says, I would try to show, look, the percent gain has been consistent, but thanks to the power of compounding, you made more money in a single day than you spent buying the stock in the first place. He says, isn't that a spiffy way to learn a lesson? So to conclude, I believe you have a powerful opportunity to use our analytics, not just to inform, but to teach. Please keep making everyone smarter, happier, and richer. I know I am smarter. Luke Crum concludes, I've learned more than I ever thought I would without finance being my job. You've made me happier. Investing has been the best game against the best players I could have hoped for. Finally, richer, our timelines have all accelerated by at least a decade. Have a great day and keep being awesome, Luke Crum. Well, you're awesome, Luke Crum. I really appreciate from a data analytics professional talking about the importance of how to present data in a picture that'll tell a story that can not just inspire people, but also give them the truth. Now, everything is contextual. There are reasons to show linear graphs. There are reasons to show logarithmic graphs. For a lot of us, especially if you're not mathematically inclined, find your math friend and ask them to explain that and be able to see both sides of it. I do think that both are important. And finally, in terms of how The Motley Fool at Fool.com could do a better job here, 
three, two, one, go. I'm not overseeing our stock pages. I do know we have a few different ways of looking at stocks and charts at the full site, but I sure hope my data analytics team is listening and that we'll continue to try to make the site tell the right story in the best way for as many people as possible. Luke, full on. All right, rule breaker, mailbag item number nine. And oh my golly, Brett Wyman, you have made a return appearance on this one episode. Yep. You were rule breaker mailbag item number four as we talked about selling off those winners, how to avoid the GEs and GMs of your portfolio over time at the age of 20. And here you are back at number nine because I, I just love this story. Thank you for sharing it. Hi, David. Just like you are a fan of games, I am too. During last week's podcast, you revealed your newest five-stock sampler. When you listed out the 10 rule breaker companies that you were going to be choosing from, I paused the podcast. I wrote down the 10 ticker symbols, and I tried to put myself into your shoes. I did my best to pick the companies that I thought would be the best performers over the next three to five years. Well, that is exactly the game that we're playing, and I love that you paused it and played the game in real time with me, Brett. I found myself with a list of incredible companies. As you read each of their names out loud, a big grin came across my face. Apple? Check. Atlassian? Check. Solar Edge. Check. Starbucks. Check. Teladoc. All caps. Three exclamation points. Check. I was thrilled to have picked this one with 100% accuracy. Now, I've been a Motley Fool member for less than a year, but it fills me with joy that I've already learned enough from you and Tom to look at a group of companies and be able to select some of the best from that list. I'm looking forward to seeing how this sampler performs and excited for countless years to come with the full best regards, Brett Weinman. Well, again, Brett, thank you for that delicious story. Love that you played the game along with me. Let's hope that we're both right. Great minds sometimes think alike, but there's always a chance we might have gotten it wrong. I hope that you've learned about my mentality through this podcast over the months and years. I am always fully prepared to find out that I was completely wrong about anything, not just the stock market, but any company any idea I had, any development in the world at large, I have an open mind. I'm trying to learn not a lot of pride of authorship of these kinds of things. So let's hope that the five-stock sampler goes out and knocks the cover off the ball, beating the S&P 500, as indeed almost all of our 28 miraculously have done. I will give you a quick update. Five stocks rolled up at random one week ago as of market close yesterday, Tuesday, January 26th. Now, who's only playing the one-week game? But the stock market is exactly flat, up 0.0%. Five stocks rolled up at random. The five you just picked, up 4% as a group. So, yep, we are beating the market so far, anyway, once again with the five stock sampler. Let's keep our fingers crossed here over the next few years and hope that you and I got it right. I also liked, and this was pointed out by another of our members, I also liked that we said no to these other five. So you can see how our five did, Brett, against the five I didn't pick. I'm not going to track that, but any, anybody is welcome to see whether we made the right calls there. Final note, that's probably the only five-stock sampler I will roll up and do in real time, but it was an awfully fun way to do it, more dynamic, and it sounds like you really took advantage of that and played it in real time yourself. Fool on. All right, now for a horse of a different color. Really appreciate this note, Brian Anderson. I'm just going to largely read this without commenting. I think it stands on its own. I think a lot of us will appreciate this perspective, but probably not everybody. We all have different thoughts out there. Brian, I loved how you articulated this, so here we go. Hello, David, on my run today. I was listening to your Rule Breaker Investing podcast, specifically the Gratitude 
2020 episode. That was near the end of last year. I really enjoyed doing that one. Brian said, I felt compelled to reach out to you. I'm so inspired by the Motley Fool way of life. I've been a subscriber to your services for around a decade now, but it truly has taken this year for me to understand the meaning of being a fool. I hadn't listened to your podcasts until late spring this past year when I decided I needed to get back into running. This year has presented some incredible personal challenges to myself and my family, as it has to many. But I found true comfort in both my church's podcast as well as Rule Breaker Investing. I realized that both these podcasts share many of the same themes. A few references you made in this most recent podcast showed some insights to me that you were a man of faith. I had a moment where I realized how interconnected the Motley Fool way of investing is to faith. 2020 has truly been a year unlike any other and has presented a storm that could shake the strongest of ships. However, Brian goes on, God provides us an anchor to stabilize ourselves in the midst of the greatest storms, a firm foundation to build our home even if storms batter its walls. The Motley Fool investing approach shares many of those same tenets, holding true like an anchor to what we know is right and standing firm when the flaming arrows come our way. I also believe that faith, Brian goes on, much like investing, is a team sport. We need to bring others along with us. They make us stronger, wiser, calmer, and more vigilant. After all, iron sharpens iron. I had a friend that I lost touch with, Brian goes on. This year, we reconnected five years later, and I've discovered that he has become enamored with investing. He now is also a listener of your podcast, and we spend time discussing many of your recommendations. We also talk about many other topics, well, old friends do, and we picked up where we left off, but it was that connection of your podcast and recommendations that brought us back together. Wow. These are challenging times, Brian concludes, and in those times, we must look for the helpers. We must look for those who are different from the crowd. You and your brother have had such great success in your life, yet you speak in a different way. I get a sense that it's not about the money for you, but it's about the way of life. I feel very much the same. Granted, with your guidance, my portfolio has made gains I could never have dreamed of over the last few years. However, while I do continue to seek long-term generational winners, I see more value in seeking others to bring along for the ride. I feel very passionately that there are many people who've been marginalized to believe that they can never invest. That could either be because they don't have enough education or they don't have enough money. I know that like many things in this world, that's a lie. They just haven't had someone take the time yet to help them understand what they need to look for. That essentially is what you spend all your time doing. I personally couldn't be more grateful and will continue to spend time finding others to bring along for the ride. There's truly so much good in this world and we just need to win it one heart and one investment at a time. I hope it brings you joy to know that each week your words bring me peace in the midst of chaos. Full on, David Brian Anderson. Well, as I mentioned earlier, I don't think I need to add a lot to that. In fact, I'm just going to give that one a mic drop. That's not my mic drop. That's Brian Anderson's. And finally, rule breaker mailbag item number 11. This is from Zach Kennelly. Zach is writing in after having been featured in last month's mailbag, which was entitled December Mailbag Post-Traumatic Growth. 
I mention this from time to time, but each of my podcasts is generally named by my producer, Rick Engdahl. So if you like our titles, and I sure do, I just kind of license him to figure out what it should be called each time. And he called the December mailbag post-traumatic growth, and he was specifically alluding to Zach Kennelly's note in that mailbag. So here's Zach writing back a month later. Happy New Year, David. Thank you so much for your well wishes, kind words, deeply thoughtful response. Most importantly, for being such an inspirational and conscious leader, I was very excited when I saw the episode named Post-Traumatic Growth, and I instantly regretted not including my excitement about experiencing our first Spiffy Pops in 2020. One of our New Year's goals at the start of last year, 2020, was to have our first Spiffy Pop. Well, in 2020, we had three. Your focus on conscious leadership and conscious capitalism, I'll just depart briefly from the note and just say, if these are new phrases for you, dear listener, if you're new to Rule Breaker Investing, please go back and listen to my interview with Whole Foods Market founder, John Mackey, who wrote the book, Conscious Leadership, which came out this most recent fall. And I did a full hour-long interview with him about it. And I think it's a really important interview for anybody who wants to be a great leader in this world. Conscious leadership and conscious capitalism, recurring themes, certainly for me in life and on this podcast. So that's what Zach is referring to. If these phrases are new to you, now we'll return to his note. Your focus on conscious leadership and conscious capitalism was enlightening. I did not expect that answer, nor was it aligned to my own thinking, which is one of the reasons I found it so delightful. Your mentioning of making lemonade out of lemons really sparked my curiosity about the company Lemonade, ticker symbol LMND, one of my brother's picks and Motley Fool stock advisor. Zach says, I was already interested in buying shares of the company, but after hearing more on Motley Fool money and learning about Dan Ariely's role in structuring the company and the purpose behind its fee structure, I'm even more interested. Lemonade is certainly on our shortlist for our next buy. Again. Zach concludes, thank you very much. Writing my mailbag and having you respond was fun, healing, and informative. I shared the episode with many family and friends, and it has sparked the most wonderful conversations. A few hours after listening to the podcast, my wife and I capped off the evening with a round of the board game, Innovation, which I received as a Christmas gift after a recommendation in your Games, Games, Games episode of the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast. Please let me know if there's ever anything I could do to help or support you, The Motley Fool, or the podcast. It would be my pleasure to help in any way I can. Grateful, Zach Kennelly. Well, I'm reminded as we close out this week and this month that gratitude and the practice of gratitude, which I highlighted in my December 9th podcast some weeks ago, it was called Gratitude 2020. Gratitude is one of the few ways to raise our own happiness and appreciation levels of this world in a permanent way. So in a way then, I see what you did there, Zach Henley. And in addition to sharing out at close such a kind and foolish and encouraging note of gratitude, I want to make sure I say thank you back to you and to my other dozen correspondents featured this week, to the insights you all give all of us, to the joy you bring me and for helping this podcast make the world smarter, happier, and richer. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Molly Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com. 